0: It's Sunday 30th of April, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Neil's out this week, but we've got two really interesting bits lined up for you on near-to-longer-term shifts in the global economy. Coming up, we'll be hearing about China and the future of EM debt restructurings. But first, it's Jennifer McKeown, our chief global economist. It's a big week ahead for central bank policy decisions with the Fed due on Wednesday and the ECB a day later. Jenny sat down with chief UK economist Paul Dales to talk about the inflation outlook and what that means for where interest rates are going. And she started by explaining why the ECB could deliver another 50 basis point hike when it meets on Thursday.
1: Yes, it's going to be an interesting week. And I think that ECB decision in particular is a relatively close call. The markets are are pricing in a a significant chance of a 50 basis point hike. And we think that that probably is the the way it will go, actually. Activity in the eurozone has been considerably more resilient than we'd all feared that it it would be, really. And there's little evidence of price pressures letting up, unlike the situation in in the US and the labour market in particular still seems to be a real source of inflationary pressure in the eurozone so the, the ecb is unlikely to give any any signals that it's at its peak and we think that probably a 50 basis point a hike is the most likely outcome at, the, at this meeting but as i said it is a close call and where do you think rates will get to in the ecb we think they'll probably get all the way to four percent in the eurozone which would be well above what what we would assume to be the neutral rate so policy will be relatively restrictive we think there's probably some economic damage to come from that.
2: And in contrast, our forecast for the Fed is that the hike this week will be its last. How much of the difference between the story of the Fed and the ECB is just due to timing and the ECB having started its hiking cycle late? Or is it more to do with differences in the economic outlook?
1: Yeah, well, it, it's it's a bit of each. As you said, the ECB was a bit later to start hiking. It's not unusual, really, for it to lag behind that the Fed a bit... And that, that would understandably mean that it may take a lot a bit longer to, to reach its peak. But that said, when it gets there, we think that the ECB will, will stay at that peak of four percent longer than the Fed stays at stays at its five to five and a quarter percent peak. And and that again relates partly to developments in, in the labour market. And what we're seeing in, in the US, which is interesting, is that there is some cooling, or there seems to be some cooling of labour demand. Vacancy rates are, are coming down, quit rates are, are coming down, and that all it encourages us that that wage growth is start, going to come off further, and it's indeed already started to slow a bit in the US. Whereas in the Eurozone, we're not really seeing that, that evidence. Vacancy rates are still relatively high. The employment measures in the surveys have continued to increase recently. Wage growth isn't coming down yet. So, so that's essentially why we think that rates are going to stay at, at their peak for, for a bit longer than, than they do in the US case.
2: And going from that, then, if we think the hike by the Fed is going to be the last and the implication is the next move will be down, that feeds into a lot of what you've been saying. But can you provide a bit more information on why we think the Fed will be moving to cut interest rates later this year?
1: Yes, well, that's really related to the fact that we think that the US is going to slip into recession in the the second half of this year, reflecting the impacts of the policy tightening that that we've already seen. There's been quite a significant policy tightening. We know that there are long and variable lags between that that policy tightening and its effects on the real economy. And we think there's clear evidence that that those effects are now coming through in tightening credit conditions and will, will impact increasingly. On the US economy. That said, the data have been a bit mixed. We've also seen some resilience in US economic activity. So so there are risks that that resilience continues, that perhaps the slowdown in wage growth that has already been gone stops, that we see wage growth stabilise, and and that these these measures of labour market tightness don't don't continue to ease off as as we've assumed that they will. But, But our expectation is that. Economic weakness in the US and indeed a recession in the US will lead to a significant easing of underlying price pressures. We're already seeing some evidence of that in the US and that that will allow the Fed to start cutting interest rates before the end of the year.
2: Now, a lot of those issues you just, just mentioned are, are wrapped up nicely in your Global Inflation Watch publication. And I think that does a really good job of highlighting what's going to happen to inflation, the similarities and differences across economies. As well as the risks, but can you sort of tell me which aspect of our inflation forecast you're most confident about, and also which aspect you worry about most?
1: Well, the aspect that we're, we're most confident about is that headline inflation will continue to fall pretty sharply uh, throughout this year, and that. The the reason for confidence in that is that it relates largely to things that have already happened. To the fact that gas prices, in particular, have come down a long way. That that's yet to fully feed through, to to headline measures of inflation. And that all of our charts, all of our analysis suggests that, that that those falls in energy prices will continue to weigh on on headline inflation. Not least because there's a significant base effect in there, just a statistical impact that means that the inflation headline inflation rates will come down. We're slightly more worried about about food inflation. Which has been a bit sticky, as so, you know, particularly in, particular in the, the the UK case. But the falls in agricultural commodity prices that we've seen should start to weigh on food inflation as well. So we're seeing energy effects knocking perhaps another further percentage point of headline inflation in advanced economies on average in the next few months. Food inflation could have a similar impact later in, in the year. So on that part, we're, we're relatively confident. It's the core inflation, the underlying inflation side, where, where we're, more, we're more worried. And that stems back to the labour market. We've seen Inflation expectations come off, short-term inflation expectations, which is a really encouraging sign. And and also, we've seen shortages continue to ease. Shortages were a massive issue last year, product shortages in particular, and they were pushing up core Goods inflation, but we've we've already seen that really turn a corner. Core goods inflation is coming down pretty much across the board now. Shortages seem to be a thing of the past. The real question now surrounds labour shortages and the tightness in labour markets and wage growth and whether we'll see a, a further easing in the US and whether that will start to feed through to the eurozone and bring down wage growth and core price pressures there. So we we are we do feel that the risk is skewed to the upside on the core inflation front, but our view is still that it will it will come off over the remainder of this year, allowing central banks to to ease off.
2: And if we're wrong on core inflation, what does that mean for central banks then going full circle to what the ECB and the Fed are worrying about,
1: perhaps? Yeah, well, I think it means that the, the risk to our central bank forecasts, at least, are, are skewed to the upside. It may be that the Fed also has to pause at a, at a higher rate for longer than we're assuming. I think particularly if the economy proves to be more resilient. We are forecasting a recession in the US, but... There are reasons to think that, that that might not happen. There have been some some signs of hope in the US economy that, that might mean that the US doesn't slip into a recession and perhaps more so in Europe, in the UK and in the Eurozone, the risk to our recession forecast is skewed to the upside. If that happens, then labour markets will stay stronger, demand will stay relatively resilient and you may not see the let-up in, in core price pressures that, that we're anticipating and that in turn would mean that central banks can't loosen as, as soon as we're expecting them to.
0: That was Jenny McKeown talking to Paul Dales about inflation and central banks. Watch out for our online briefing about the ECB shortly after Thursday's announcement. Details on the podcast page. Now, there have been hopeful signs around the fraught issue of sovereign debt restructurings, with China voicing greater willingness to coordinate with other creditors potentially ending a standoff which has delayed the resolution of a series of emerging market defaults. But William Jackson, the head of our EM coverage, isn't optimistic. In fact, in a more contentious age of economic fracturing, he thinks governments and investors need to get used to more drawn-out negotiations. He recently spoke to Mark Williams, our chief Asia economist, about what lies ahead. And he started by talking about whether China looks finally willing to budge on debt negotiations after months of resistance. Debt restructurings in emerging markets since the pandemic have been incredibly slow.
3: And there have been lots of impediments to this and China being a, a seemingly a key one. We have heard particularly the, the latest IMF and World Bank meetings in the last few weeks and some, some positive noises, it seems that China might slowly be lifting some of the hurdles that have prevented restructurings. And there, there seems to be a broad consensus that there's a need for, to accelerate this process of resolving debt restructurings, letting some of these quite debt distressed emerging markets restore debt sustainability and regain access to global capital markets.
4: And though you published on this recently, one of the interesting points I, I, I thought in that was that it's not all about China. I know a lot of the, the reporting focuses on China's emergence as this major creditor to, to frontier markets, but you were talking about the broader shifts in the shape of of lending to frontiers over the past couple of decades. Could you give us a bit of detail on that? Yeah, but I think you're, you're,
0: you're
3: right. We shouldn't end all the blame on China. In some cases, actually too. To go on a side tangent, you could look at a country like Lebanon, which has been without debt restructuring for years. That's not to do with China, it's to do with domestic politicians being unable to formulate a reform program that can convince investors that the economy will right itself. But even when we look beyond that, that case, there's a kind of broad point here that the kind of nature of debt in emerging markets has become much more complex. There's a much broader array of creditors than in the past. So if you look at debt restructurings in the past, one of the factors that helped to get these over the line was that the the range of creditors was quite limited. It mainly consisted of G7 governments, multilateral lenders like the IMF and World Bank, and Western banks. Now that that picture has changed. You still have some of the lending from G7 governments and multilateral lenders, Western banks, but you also have a vast array of bondholders, and China's become this has also become this big player. So you, you have this whole range of creditors that need to start seeing eye-to-eye. One other factor you could add to that is there's a larger domestic investor base. We typically think about debt restructuring being focused on the external debt, but in some countries there's a lot of domestic debt which is carrying very high interest rates. This is a problem in Ghana, for example, and that's also contributing to a lack of debt sustainability. So... Losses also need to be imposed onto the domestic economy. Although it's
4: particularly striking and it maybe goes against what I had taken to be the case from, from a lot of the reporting that the, the biggest increase in lending to Frontiers over the past decade or so had actually come from private creditors rather than from China, that seems to be quite a, a turnaround.
3: Yeah, there was in particular a lot of debt issuance in, in the first half of the previous decade by, by some smaller emerging markets, some frontier markets, as they took advantage at the time of relatively favourable external borrowing conditions. Like you say, that that led to a big increase in the debt side to these private investors, and there are a lot of them to bring to the table to, to try and get a debt, debt restructuring over the line.
4: But I guess it's still the case. You've, you've got, as you say, these kind of Universe of of private creditors, but the 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 elephant in the room, if you like, is is China simply because it is is well it's very large, but also in principle it's the single actor that could break the the logjam in all this.
3: Yeah, that, that's right. So it's one single very large creditor, but it has been seemingly an obstacle to to these talks initially. If we go back to the height of the pandemic. It looked like China, which seemed quite intransigent, It seemed to be insisting on case-by-case restructurings of individual loans. There were lots of concerns about the lack of transparency about the size of Chinese debt side to China, which made other investors lack trust in the whole restructuring process. Some of those have been overcome, but even, even more recently, we see other obstacles put in place by China. There was an episode recently where China started to insist that the IMF take losses on on lending, which is unprecedented. Since wrote back on that, but it shows that China seems to be still putting up these obstacles from time to time. I guess, Mark, I'd be quite interested to know from your, your perspective, looking at China, what do you think China's game is here? The, the sums involved are relatively small for China itself, even if they're big for the Debtor country, but is it is it just stubbornness, or is it a sort of national interest that they're they're fighting for?
4: So I think there's probably a couple of things going on. China obviously has emerged as this big creditor to to frontiers. But it's emerged into a world in which there are always these existing structures. The traditional creditors have their structures to work out issues of of debt distress. And China, I think, feels that you know it doesn't really want to just go along with the way things were before it appeared on on the scene. And in particular, when it looks at the like the Paris Club, you know, this group of the major Western official creditors. It it thinks there's a real risk there of a stitcher, that its interests won't be represented. So he doesn't just want to go along with with that. The second thing that's going on, though, is that even within China, there's a lot of interest groups. So there's a coordination problem that, if you like, it it mirrors the... The traditional coordination problem that might have been ironed out at the Paris Club, where you had all the creditors would come together and they'd, they'd, they'd agree some consensus position that they can move forward from. You kind of have to have that happen within China as well, because it's there's so many different branches of, of, of the state and the broader state sector have been involved in lending over the past few years. And there's been this broad push under the headline of the Belt and Road Initiative, which has given all different arms of the state a reason to go out and and, and, and lent, it involved the People's Bank, it's involved the Finance Ministry, it's involved provincial governments, and then it's involved a, a range of different banks whose lending is, if you like, on a spectrum from how commercial it is to how much it is really just supporting state initiatives. And so there needs, you know, it's quite difficult to, to create a consensus within that group because they've all got slightly different interests. And because this is a relatively new situation, I think that the structures probably didn't exist before, so I think it's perhaps not that surprising that it's taken different Chinese actors quite a time to to find their way to a a consensus position. I guess the the more recent positive signs we we've heard perhaps suggest that, that that something has shifted there. I don't think we know to be sure it's a lot of this very, very opaque, but I do feel that it that there had to be some sort of position reached because China was starting to get quite a lot of blowback. It was starting to be seen as the roadblock and starting to be seen as a cause of distress, economic distress in countries, which it wants to be trying to improve its its ties with. So um, there's this kind of overarching pressure, I think, has been brought to bear probably within the Chinese system to say that we we do need to move on. We need to find a way to, that we can work with the other creditors and move on. So hopefully we are at, at a stage in the process where we'll see more positive developments. Having said that, one of the points that you made recently in your, in your note was really to sort of sound a note of scepticism about, about whether we can ever really get back to the or, or recreate the system that we had before China was here, where the, the creditors could ultimately kind of come together and get behind a single solution for a lot of this, because it simply is the case that China and, and many of the Western creditors just don't see eye to eye on all of this stuff. And I guess that, that harks back to the work that we've been doing across different areas of our, our research on what we're calling global fracturing, this kind of just the split between China and and, and and the West, which I think these these debt issues are really one element of that.
3: Yeah, I I agree with that. I think you kind of brought it up with the first point you made earlier there that there's a lack of trust that China thinks it might be getting stitched up by the by the G7 governments, and at the same time, Western investors have been very concerned that China might get a more favourable outcome in debt restructurings than than they would. And yes, given the the geopolitical fault lines where. We think it's very hard to see that trust being restored in a, in a fundamental way. So what happens next
4: then? Maybe you could just quickly map out before we finish you now. What do these sorts of relations look like over the over the next 10 years? I mean, maybe there's a bit of an improvement in the short term now, but if there isn't that trust between Chinese creditors and Western creditors, what does that mean for, for borrowers in the emerging world? I think we
3: have to consider that the developments we've seen recently might well impact on on lending decisions to to these emerging economies in the future, I think given that the lengths that of these debt restructurings must mean that Western investors will become more reluctant about lending to countries that are heavily indebted to China for fear that if, if debt problems do come to a head they're going to be they're going to be stuck in this limbo for a very long time. so I think it's quite plausible that we might among frontier markets see international lending increasingly divides along different camps, where there are some countries that become much more dependent on Chinese lending and some countries that become much more dependent on Western lending. I think as a yeah overall, that probably means a smaller access to to capital flows for the countries in question, a lower pool of foreign savings that can be used for their own investment, that's pretty negative for, for growth. I suspect that. Countries that fall within that China camp are less likely to be bound by the conditionality that's often come with the i m f and world bank lending and while painful and often politically unpopular has has in the past been a very important ingredient for restoring macroeconomic stability in emerging markets, and that set some of the groundwork for the strong growth we've seen over the last 20 years. And I guess if
4: you're a private creditor, if you're looking out into a world in which you think that debt distress won't be resolved easily in the future, that's just going to make you more cautious as well. So you don't have to be taking a a side yourself in this geopolitical split. It's just the landscape has, has changed and you're going to be a lot more cautious about lending.
0: That was Mark Williams talking to William Jackson. I'll link to William's report on the podcast page. But that's all for now. You can find all the analysis discussed in this episode on our website. That's capitaleconomics.com. And for complete access to all our insights, as well as powerful data and charting tools, check out CE Advance, our new premium platform. And finally, if you like it, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. It's on Spotify, Apple, all the leading platforms. But until next time, goodbye.